from the man who wrote the book on human behavior. A special edition Richard Flint podcast. Let's talk about it. Let's talk human behavior. Hey, welcome to Let's Talk Human Behavior. You know what? Life is about two things. It's about words and it's about behavior, which create the essence of communication. Words are what are spoken and behavior is what defines truth. Folks, so much of life's confusion, frustration, and disappointment is the result of the contradiction between what is said and what is done. Now, if you've been around me, you know my three words, behavior never lies. Our time together is dedicated to helping you become better, to become smarter, and stronger in creating a presence that has a positive presence when you're not present. So let's talk human behavior. You know, life is really interesting. We're given time on this earth to live. Yet so many don't understand what it means to live. When you don't understand and know your purpose, you're scattered, you're searching for a direction, and you're just seeking to figure out what this thing called life is all about. You know, to go along with this, the terrain of life is always changing. <laughs> and that is challenging for many people. So many times I've had a person say to me, I just want my life to settle down and stop changing. I don't like change. The challenge is life is always changing. For some people, they see it as an opportunity. But when other people experience change, they see it as a disaster. This is why my three A's are so important to living a life of purpose and meaning. You've got to be able to adapt. You've got to be able to adjust. You've got to be able to realign yourself. When these three are not part of your strength arsenal, you'll find yourself living on an emotional slide. You find yourself being frustrated with what life brings to you. You find yourself going through emotional ups and downs. You find yourself lost in the midst of whatever terrain you're standing in. Now, the word we, we use for this is depression. We're born with a purpose. You were born for achievement. You were born for making a difference, for living a life of growth, a life of discovery and success. The challenge is when you're not sure what that means, or you think you found it, and then it's taken away from you. You find yourself standing in the midst of somewhere that feels like the middle of nowhere. You're in the midst of what is, not knowing how to find the meaning to what can. It's a lonely place filled with an emptiness that leaves you feeling powerless, feeling without purpose. It leaves you screaming Yet, no one hears your screams. My guest today is Captain Dick Woodall. 
when I decided I wanted to do a show on working through depression, I reached out to Dick and asked if he would be willing to share his story. Now, let me tell you something about Dick. I have the highest respect for him because he has faced himself and has become one whom I classify as one who was lost, but is found. And Dick, I wanna welcome you to Let's Talk Human Behavior. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of what we do. Thank you for the invitation, Richard. I'm excited to be here. I know that uh, several of the people who will listen to this podcast really don't know who you are. So who are you? Do you know? Yeah, I think I know. Um, I like to answer that question with a quick phrase, which is the strength of the wolf is in the pack and the strength of the pack is in the wolf. And by that, I mean, my strength is in a group, uh, a committee, an organization. It's with people. I'm a people person. And that's where my strength is. Uh, I've been a leader since I was a Cub Scout uh, through high school, through college. Uh, the type of jobs I've had have been leadership jobs. Um, and I'm doing both real estate and life coaching now. Both of them are leadership jobs. I've also been a lone wolf, and that's no pack, no teamwork, no support, and that's where I sink into depression. If I'm not productive, I'm lost, and I sink into depression emotionally and physically. And it is just as you expressed, it's dark, it's lonesome, and it's a very, very empty place. For me, it can feel like drowning, and people around me have to be careful because just like when someone's drowning, there's a tendency to want to pull those that come to rescue you down uh, for your own survival. Um, it can get near the place where you want to give up the fight. I've never gotten there. I've never gotten to where I wanted to hurt myself or hurt anyone else, although that can happen too. Um, depression is, it's a, it's a, chemical thing in the brain. And it's not something you can just snap your fingers and say, oh, get over it, get out of here, you know, go do something. It's, uh, it's like, it's like you're out of gas. And the world is spinning around going past you. At least for me, this this last time, I had probably my uh, deepest depression was my most recent one. And I felt out of control. I felt spinning. I knew it. Uh, I knew it was coming on. And Denise and I talked about it. Um, I made an appointment with a psychiatrist, but the closest one I could get was eight weeks out. And uh, I went to work in the real estate office uh, on the third of uh, March of this year. And I came home about two in the afternoon and said to Denise. I've got to do something. This isn't working. I'm in there shuffling papers and, and just absolutely producing nothing, just getting more frustrated and out of control. And she said, I know this was coming, Dick. We've talked about it a little bit. I spent the morning calling facilities to find out where there might be one that you could go to 
that would be of help. I found one in Sarasota aligned with the Memorial Hospital and uh, they have room. I said, what do I have to take? She said, a couple of changes of clothes. I said, I'm ready to go in 10 minutes. Um, so I, I just knew that I had to do something about it. I was lost and I didn't want to get any further lost. I didn't know what I was signing up for. I found that when I got there, but um, I knew I needed help. I knew I'd gotten to the point where I really needed help. So uh, it was a decision that we made together uh, as husband and wife and we're doing well together and it's just awesome to have that kind of support. There was a transformation that occurred when I was in the behavioral center. Um, it's a mental health behavioral center and it's locked down. When I signed in, they Baker acted me because that's the only way you can get into that particular facility. Neither of us knew that, but I was there and it was time to do it. Baker Act is a Florida law that if somebody might hurt themselves or hurt someone else, or is that out of control? Um, a relative, a parent, a spouse, or a policeman uh, can take you to that facility and sign you in against your will for up to three days. After three days, you have uh, the ability to sign yourself out. But I went there and signed in voluntarily. Um, but I did have to get Baker acted, which has a stigma to it. Um, in order to go in at that point, I was ready. In, in there, it was like being in lockdown. My first experience was they took me to a downstairs room where they had a little office and across the little hallway, uh, three plate glass windows, three separate rooms, but in the rooms was nothing but a cot and a blanket, not even a pillow. The light was a little dull light in the ceiling there wasn't a light switch. There wasn't a doorknob on my side. It was as if I were in prison. And nobody had told me why I was there. I didn't know if this was going to be the whole deal or uh, nobody explained anything to me. Um, essentially, they were treating me pretty much like a criminal. So I just decided to curl up on the cot and take a little nap. And I tell you that time totally disappeared. There was no time there. Um, no watch, no clocks, dark, except for a little glow of light. People are moving outside, but I have no idea who they are, or what they're doing. And I woke up from my nap um, and figured probably I, I'd been there four or five hours at least by then. And then the person came in and uh, I realized through their window that it was still daylight out. And I'd gone in at 5.30 at night. So I came to realize that what I thought was five hours had been an hour and a half total. I had totally lost track of time from the minute I went in there. Um, and no clocks, no watches throughout the five days I was there, which was part of the cure. That everything that I had been doing was so based on time. So based on got to get this done, got to get that done, got to hurry up, got to make it happen, trying to do more. And all of a sudden there was no time. And it was 
What a relief. There's nothing I can do. I'm locked in here and there is no time. I might as well just relax. And that started happening slowly. They moved me onto the floor where there were other patients or about 12 of us there from uh, a 21 year old girl to uh, a gentleman just a little older than I am. And a number of them had alcohol or drug problems that they had worked through. And this was the next phase of them getting back into life. Um, a couple of them had PTSD. And then there were a couple that just had uh, whatever I would call it, emotional burnout, lost control of my life and were in, in depression. Uh, but we all got along fine. That part of it was good. We played a lot of cards together and uh, we had two sessions a day of group therapy, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and then uh, three meals and met with a doctor every day, with a psychiatrist every day. And it allowed me to unload everything because there was nothing I could do about it. There was a little phone on the wall with a wire so you wouldn't hang yourself on the telephone wire. You could call out just during an hour period, but of course everybody was on the phone during that hour. So it was very hard to even make a phone call. Uh, very, uh, very much on my own and it felt good. It started to feel good on the second day, not that night and first morning, but I started to feel good in there. I started to feel like, you know, there's a reason I'm here. God had something to do with this. I'm not gonna fight this. I'm not gonna try to get out of here. I'm not gonna try to uh, be afraid of it. I'm gonna find out why I'm here. What is it I'm supposed to learn here? What is it that I can learn from these other people? What is it I'm gonna learn about myself being here? And the positive thoughts started to build. And it was the beginning of me coming out of that depression and getting into a point uh, Denise was able to come up and visit me two of the evenings that I was there for a half an hour. And she was of the same mind I was as to it's time we changed our lives. We're going too fast. We're pushing too hard. And what is the end goal? The end goal is the end's going to get here long before the goal ever happens if we keep this up. We're not having fun. We're not playing. We're not enjoying our time together, our lives. We need to do a lot more of that and a less, lot less worrying about producing. Um, she's type A also. <laughs> so there's part of that right there. And, but again, we were agreeing on everything. So I started looking at life from a different perspective to where I could be at least semi-retired. Wasn't gonna give everything up all at once, but at least semi-retired. And my clarity started my clarity about my life, about our life together, and about what my passion is started growing, became more and more clear with with each minute that I was there. Dick, let um, me ask you let me ask you a question. Yep. You said you could feel that it was coming on. Yep. What were the feelings? How did you know it was coming on? What did you feel? Uh, it starts with frustration. Um, my frustrations come with the computer a lot, or my frustrations will come with people that I think should be answering my questions, giving my responses, 
doing their job quick and efficiently and professionally up to my speed, not up to their speed. So I start getting anxious, stressed, um, and very frustrated with uh, the computer systems. We, we use a cloud, but Denise and our um, assistant are putting things in the cloud and they've got them like five layers down. Well, I can remember my old home phone number when I was a kid, but I can't remember five layers down to look something up and find out where it's hidden in the cloud. And it just became one more thing that was frustrating me. Did you find that uh, in the process of this, that there was a lot of both uh, personal disappointment and disappointment in other people? Um, absolutely both. Um, my, my initial reaction is to be disappointed in somebody else. They're not working fast enough. They're not giving me answers fast enough. They're not doing things fast enough. And then disappointment with myself because, well, I should be able to do this myself. And I'm the one that's having to ask for help. So who am I the one to complain about them? So yes, to both. Well, you know, you know me well enough and I, uh, that you know that I believe that so much of what we experience in today uh, is connected in several layers to our yesterday. And that today in our life is really a demonstration of whatever yesterday was to us. So can you connect to your yesterday, a part of this journey that has taken you to where you had to really uh, admit, I can't do this by myself? Have you asked me that two months ago? I would have said, well, maybe I have some ideas, but I got clarity on that also. Um, part of it is codependency. Uh, codependency is where an individual has excessive emotional and psychological reliance on, on a partner or other people. And I was showing signs of that for sure, wanting other people to do my work or help for me. But when I look back uh, to the depth of it all, um, it had to do with my parents. My parents were not emotionally expressive at all. I never saw them hug each other. I never saw them kiss each other. I never saw them say, I love you. And I never remember any of those three things, them reacting to me. And I desperately needed that, that emotional affection um, from my father, especially. And I didn't get it. So I decided at a very young age that I needed to earn it. I had, it, had, to, be, um, had to be doing had to be creating. And, and I made the decision to become the best farmhand he ever had. And that was my job from really pretty much eight years old on. Uh, but I still never got the emotional reward that I sought. And that brought on probably the beginnings of depression for me, although I didn't realize it at the time. It was frustration at the time. How do I connect with this man? Uh, what is it I have to do? but I couldn't get the emotional rewards that I was seeking. Um, I took that a step further and used that same work for you, produce for you. Uh, I want your attention with several mentors I had 
And as long as I'm working and producing, there's a great connection. And the minute I'm not working for them, uh, it felt like they didn't have a need for me. And then I went through several ma marriages with the same thing. So it's been a long part of my life for 50 some years uh, or more now, um, trying to get that emotional reward. Do you feel, Dick, that uh, two things here that I think, it, I think our, our listeners really need to hear. Uh, I know you well enough. I know you are a, you give the appearance of being a very strong person. Ever since I've known you, I, you know, you've, you've had that appearance. Was it, and I don't like the word, but the word fits here. Was it hard for you to admit to yourself first and then to others that, you know, I, I got an issue. I, I, there's something wrong with me. I mean, was that a challenge for you to just come to grips with? It's been a challenge um, basically since my first divorce because although my wife wouldn't go, I went through marriage counseling and I did that two more times without a wife. So I worked at finding out why I can't feel love, why I'm not getting love. I didn't know that I couldn't feel it as much as um, I started believing there was something wrong with me, that I was defective, and that there was a part missing, that somehow God forgot to emplace a part in me that was lovable, uh, and that the only way I could get attention was producing. So yeah, that's been going on for a long time, and I've worked on it for a long time. I've never had any problem speaking about it. I don't have a problem speaking about depression now. Um, I've always been open about it. I truly enjoyed um, the group marriage sessions that I was in, uh, a grief session that I went through for a year with a psychiatrist. Um, I enjoyed those explorations into myself, but I still had that feeling that, that I had a part missing. Um, and that, that's a very lonesome feeling. The, uh, it, it sounds part, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like that uh, from the time back to your parents, that uh, it created this two things within you. Uh, number one, the feeling of being rejected. Correct. And then that created the feeling of being alone. And, you know, I've worked with enough people who have worked through depression to know that once we get this feeling of, uh, and it's an emotional, overwhelming feeling of where we feel uh, disconnected, uh, we feel alone, we feel rejected, that in order to handle that and not face it, uh, everybody creates an escape path. And that escape becomes our avoidance behavior. And it sounds like in some respects that your escape path uh, was work. Absolutely. Um, I tried other things. I tried um, uh, the, the, the wrong route several times, but never to the point of addiction, uh, maybe close to the edge of addiction on certain things, and then decided this isn't going to fix it for me. This isn't where I want to go. Um, 
and was able to control myself and come back. And the only thing I could come back to was producing. If I'm not producing, I'm not valid. I, my, my self-worth isn't there. So my worst times were when I was alone. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, like with your dad or with your, uh, you know, your former marriages, uh, that feeling of being alone and being rejected can also set you up to, you know, to be in the midst of, but be alone from. And uh, you can be married and be alone. Uh, and Even some of the groups that I was in and the leader of, um, I noticed this first in high school, leading both the junior and senior class as president and both the junior and senior groups in our fellowship at church as the president and in charge. I got along well with the teachers. I got along well with the pastor. Um, I was their right-hand man for getting things done, but I didn't have, but I was alone. I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had the support of the other students, my friends. Um, I became the target of, if, it, if, if there were things they had to do um, to go on a ski, a ski trip with the fellowship group, uh, they didn't want to do that, but they should have the right to come. They didn't have to go to the car wash. They didn't have to go to the cookies bake sale, but they should still be able to go on the ski trip with everybody. And I'm the leader that had to say, no, you can't. So that was with my peers, even in high school. So um, the leadership role was there, but the aloneness was there too. Well, what about whenever you were, because you were a captain on a 747, correct? Correct. Yeah. What about that? What about that experience? That experience was awesome. That, that was probably that career saved me. I loved the job. I loved the leadership role. Um, I got to play the leadership role to whatever extent I wanted to. A lot of captains didn't want to have anything to do with the, the uh, stewardesses and stewards in the back of the plane, and yet still totally responsible for them and all the passengers and whatever's going on back there. But I just loved working with them and making the whole thing work smoothly. Um, same thing with the co-pilot and the uh, flight engineer. My briefing to them was I spent a lot of time working in the engineer's seat. I spent a lot of time working in the co-pilot seat, moving up here, and I've made a lot of mistakes. All I ask is that if you see something going wrong or you make a mistake, bring it up. We'll put it on the table and we'll all figure out a solution to it. Just don't hide it from anybody. And by starting each flight with that, it allows people to be human. It allows people to make mistakes and not hide them. Uh, so everything comes up for the safety of the flight and the passengers. And it gave the flight attendants the right to come up to the cockpit and say, I'm having a person back, trouble with a person back there. He's being belligerent. Um, he's going out of control. I've cut him off from booze and he's screaming and yelling about it could one of you in a uniform come back there? Because coming back there in the pilot's uniform and in those days being a male versus a female um, would do a lot to calm people down. And I always was, as a flight engineer, I was, I'll take care of it, Captain. I'll be glad to go back there. The Captain and the co-pilot should keep flying. 
Um, and I was always sending my flight engineer back there. Yep, come on up here, talk about it. I'll give you all the help I can. And we're gonna send flight engineer back there to help solve the problem for you. So he puts his jacket on, his uniform hat on, and usually that pretty much took care of it. And we had a good flight and we worked together the way it should be. What happened whenever you left the airline? I mean, did you go, I mean, while you were, you know, it sounds like that while you were there and, you know, you've told me the time at times like, uh, you know, you had the, the crew on a 747 was how many people? No. 18, flight, 18 flight attendants and four pilots. Yeah, and in that environment, you were in charge. Correct, totally in charge. Once we left the gate, that airplane was mine. I had a multi-million dollar business that I owned right then and there with 400 passengers, 18 flight attendants and four, uh, three co-pilots and myself, yeah. So as long as you were busy or in that scenario, you didn't really face what was really going on inside you because you were busy. And productive. And I loved it. And it was leadership. And I'm good at leadership. I enjoy leadership. And I get f feedback from the flight attendants, from the other co-pilots that it's really been a pleasure to work with you. And I can just tell the way they, they say it, that they meant that they were comfortable doing their job and that they felt they had the support they needed to do their job. And they appreciated it. So what happened? What happened to you whenever you left the airline? What did you did you have to? Was that the beginning or part of coming to grips with, you know, what you, what was really going on inside you? Because again, you had your escape path into work, and there you felt valuable. You felt important. But when you left the airlines, did you go back to feeling alone? No, because I immediately got another job. I immediately <laughs> retired and became uh, a realtor. And um, it was in a small company starting up and everybody starting up was brand new, whether they were young or my age. And uh, so we had a group and we were learning together. We were training together. We were learning the town together because it was new for a number of us. Um, and it was fun. And what's my job is to go out and meet people and help solve their problems. It just happened to be real estate now. So um, again, I had the camaraderie of being in an office with other people doing the same stuff that we could help each other out. We could learn from each other. Uh, we could go out and have a cocktail after work together. It was, it was wonderful. Well, in, in that scenario then, Dick, were, were you so busy being busy that you didn't have to face yourself? I think that's always the case. I think I have to keep busy or face myself. Um, I'll tell you a story, an airline story that really shows my, my busyness and my depression. Um, often had to work four or five or six day trips with the airline had a ball doing it. I really enjoyed the job, um, felt needed, felt um, like I could do my leadership role well, uh, felt like I worked well with uh, the, the ticket agents, the uh, people at the podium checking you in, the mechanics, everybody, uh, and everybody on board. But then I'd go home and I'd have four or five or six days off. And the first day 
is kind of rest and recuperate. The, the second day is get the honeydew list done and then I'm in depression. I've got nothing that I have to do, nothing that I have to produce, no one to do it with. Most of those would be weekdays and any friends or, or social partners were, were off. So we're off working and I'm off of work. So again, very alone. And by the third day, uh, there were times that I would just curl up in bed, pull the blinds, pull the shades, put the pillow over my head, the blankets over my head and just curl up into a ball there of no energy, no thoughts, no happiness, no anything. But then from time to time, the telephone would ring. It would be United's flight crew desk saying, Captain Jones can't make it. Captain Woodhull, can you come fly his trip? You've got to be here in an hour and a half for ready for a four day trip. As if you turned on the brightest light bulb in the room and in my life and in my head, I was, yes, I can, I'm ready. I was needed, I was wanted, I could produce, I could go do something I was good at. And the instantaneous endorphins were flooding my brain, uh, just like a switch had been flipped. And I would go fly that four day, five day, six day trip, whatever it was, and just be as happy and comfortable and no, no residual depression whatsoever until sometime I would go through it again. So long when you were, you know, alone with nothing to do, that was your enemy. Still when is. You, yeah. When you were busy, that was your salvation. Right. And I didn't give myself permission to have a hobby or have something that I enjoyed doing. I did uh, towards the end of my career for a few years there, find a group that I could play racquetball with and whatever day I was off, I could go in there and some members of my group would be there. And that was just wonderful. That was beautiful. Good physical exercise after my four or five day trip, trying to get back on time schedule and stuff. Uh, I absolutely loved that. But up until that point, I tried to join, join racquetball clubs. Well, my schedule changes usually every week and uh, they would get upset that I couldn't make my uh, scheduled game with them and I well we'll just do it any other day this week you let me know well the Tuesday this is my Tuesday that's when I play racquetball and so I really didn't do that because people weren't appreciative well you know one of the things and and I, because I, I really want you to be able to show people how you can actually help them and you know when when you and Denise got together she was working in an orange grove you were selling real estate and then Denise came on to be your assistant. <laughs> yeah. And with, you know, she wasn't a, a, a realtor at that time, but she got her license. You were still the captain. And so you were still in charge. You were the leader. And then all of a sudden, uh, this little lady came into her own in real estate. And what happened? She's a type A personality and uh, the captain had competition. And I remember being at the um, uh, Chamber of Commerce and something had to be done where we introduced ourselves. And she said, we're the captain's team with Sun Realty. And this is my husband, Dick, he's the captain, but I want you to know I'm the general. 
And I went, <laughs> wait a minute, she's admitting she's taken over and she's letting the world know. <laughs> and she has taken over the real estate. She is awesome at it. She loves it. Um, she's very good at it. And she wants to continue doing it. I, I got it. How did that affect you? I mean, because it was like you were having to step backwards into the shadow. There was an adjustment necessary. And that's kind of where I found what my passion truly was or is. Um, it happened where she was working, doing a lot of stuff, and we were in the downturn um, of the economy. And I'd heard, so I was feeling not as needed uh, or not as productive, but I wasn't depressed about it. I was just thinking about it. I heard a lot of people talking or found people online talking about their passion. And I thought, I don't have a passion. Uh, Richard would say, what's your dream? And I would say, well, I don't have a dream. I just live each day and I enjoy it. Uh, he said, you have a dream. You just don't, haven't found it yet. And that was pretty much the same for passion. I have a passion. I just hadn't found it yet. So I said, I want to find my passion. I've got time now while Denise is doing very well with the real estate. And she gave me permission to take time to, to dig into that. So it was, um, uh, I prayed, I Googled passion. I took, what is your passion tests online? Um, uh, did all of those kind of things, uh, meditated, just tried to hear the answer. And I did this for a year and a half and got frustrated and got angry with God and said, why won't you answer this question? Why won't you help me here? Um, and then dug right back into it again and studied more on it. And one day that year and a half uh, later, I don't remember what I was doing, but not out loud, but I heard a voice in my head. I heard the words were in my head loud and clear, but there was no noise involved. And it was Dick, look in your rear view mirror. I knew exactly that it was from God and I knew exactly what it meant. It meant I had to look into my past and find the times that I was happiest, most peaceful, serving others, doing God's work. And I found out with that study that it was when I was helping others succeed at whatever there was when I was helping young men get out of jail that didn't belong in jail, um, helping other people get a business started that had never started a business before. That, though, I was doing those coaching things just as a neighbor and a friend back then, even during my flying career. So that's what happened. And I realized I had to go back on Google and say, well, I want to do this and I want to help people like that. And it kept coming up coach, coach, life coach. And I said, okay. And I went and got training to be a life coach, then a business coach. And I'm in a different world when I'm coaching. I am so relaxed. And so it's, it's being the captain again, without the stress that's involved with being the captain. Um, it's listening to people and helping them find their answers to their problems. I don't have the answers to their problems. I'm not the answer man at all, but I'm very good at listening. Um, I'm very good at uh, 
watching body language. I use Zoom because of that and can help them find the answers to their own questions. Would you say that um, part of what's helped you because you were lost and I, I really believe that you have found yourself now, would you say that a, a, a big part of this, uh, your, your transformation uh, has been that you have found uh, your purpose, your stage? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yes, that is, that is my passion. My stage, my purpose, my passion are all one thing. Uh, I'm still doing real estate. I'm using my coaching in real estate, helping people find what they really want rather than just get frustrated if they look at 20 houses and don't know. I help them learn what they're really looking for. So I enjoy that part of the challenge. So that's coaching for me also. But I enjoy my one-on-one -on -one coaching with people that are going through uh, career changes and fighting depression. Uh, and that's kind of my niche. And uh, I have the background for all of the above. I've had several businesses of my own that I've run successfully and uh, I'm enjoying life. Denise and I are sharing the real estate and will continue to. Well, it, you know, it, it's amazing that whenever you, you find your place in life and you know what your stage is and you can stand on that stage with confidence and you can stand on that stage having the belief in yourself and the trust that you can make a difference and the faith that there are people out there that I could help. So if, if someone wanted to find out more about what you could do to help them, how would they find you? How could they reach you? Well, they can reach me by telephone. I'm happy to pick it up. It's my cell phone and I'll be happy to talk to them. It's 941-276-4948. Nine four one two seven six four nine four eight. If you want to learn a little more about me, I'm just in the process of of getting it redone. So um, this is March nineteenth. Uh, my May new 19th. website. May nineteenth. Yeah, that too. My, I I started a new in March. This is May nineteenth, and my my new uh, website is getting published either today or tomorrow. Um, and I'm, I'm quite proud of it. So you can learn about me, what I do, what I have to offer right there. And that's uh, coachingwithcaptaindick.com. Or you can email me at coachingwithcaptaindick at gmail.com. Well, one of the things folks that you, you learn, if, you know, if I, I this, this is personal with me and it's only, it's my training, but I think there are two types of depression. And I think, uh, I think Dick has experienced both of them. Uh, one of them is there is an imbalance inside of us that causes us to have that depression. Absolutely. But I think there's also the personal depression where within ourselves we feel lost. Uh, we don't, we don't think we have a purpose. Our, if we have a purpose, we can't seem to find the path to it. And the thing that I, that I really like about Dick and I think his value uh, to helping people is his value that the fact that he's been lost, but now he's found. And he's not gonna talk to you from theory. 
Uh, he's not going to talk to you from opinion. Uh, he's going to talk to you from experience. And experience is the greatest is the greatest teacher. So we'll have his contact information here for you. And if from what you've heard from uh, from Captain Dick today, if you can identify with him, and you'd like to raise yourself from the ashes of where you just feel lost, or you feel uncertain, or you feel like you're standing in the middle of somewhere that's actually nowhere, uh, I encourage you, reach out to him. Because the journey he's made and where he is today might be the footsteps that you need in order to get you beyond that. And I'm going to tell you something, Dick. I really appreciate your honesty today. I appreciate your openness uh, because uh, a lot of people couldn't share at the level of what you've shared today. And I really, really, really want to thank you for, for doing that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. I'm not afraid to say who I am. And I found out uh, that I can touch people's hearts, minds, and souls that way. And I believe that's why I'm here. Well, we've been excited to have you as a guest here today on Let's Talk Human Behavior. So I will see you next time. And we'll continue helping you to understand the importance of behavior and that words are what we say but behavior is what we do. And the essence of truth in a human life is behavior. And that's why we always want to talk about let's talk human behavior.